Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan, and my guest this week is once again, Rebecca Carey of the Maine Society of the United States. And she is once again talking about the Dormant Commerce Clause. Last time on episode 57, she was talking about puppy mills. But this time she is talking about Prop 12, the ballot initiative that changed the way quote unquote farmers all over the country are raising animals if they want to sell those dead bodies in California. And also about the recent Ninth Circuit case, which which upheld it. Sales bans like the one in California are serious game changers for animals. And this is a very important case. Before we get to the interview, I'd just like to take a moment to ask for your support for Our Hen House, which is, of course, the, the not-for-profit entity that produces the Animal Law Podcast along with the Our Hen House Podcast. If you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. There you can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make a one-time donation of any amount. This would be an amazing time to make that donation since due to the generosity of some very special people, all donations received between now and the end of the year up to $20,000 will be tripled. Oh my God, I hope we, but they're not going to be tripled unless we get that $20,000. So uh, yeah, the tension is mounting. We know, however, that these are really hard times. Oh my God. And if you cannot afford this, we totally, totally understand. Uh, our supporters who do support us, I think always know that they're they're helping to provide this uh, podcast to not just themselves, but to all the others who maybe can't afford right now to contribute. And we could not be more grateful. And of course, if you haven't yet done so, please check out the Our Hand House podcast, which I co-host along with Jasmine Singer. A couple of recent episodes that might be of interest include episode 565 with Juliette Galletley, the founder and ED of Viva UK. Among other things, I chatted with her about Hogwood, which is a short film that documents an undercover investigation of a now notorious UK pig farm that not only resulted in the closure of the quote-unquote farm, notice how I always put farm in quotes when it comes to animals, clever, right? But it changed the way many people in the UK think about how animals are raised, or perhaps we should say tortured, in their very own backyard. People in, in the UK are very, very fond of animals, and sometimes they really don't know how bad it is. And this this really enlightened them. Or there's episode 562 with Stephanie Boyles Griffin of the Botstiber Institute, who talked with us about conflicts between wildlife and people, from elephants in Africa to white-tailed deer in the U.S., and the many methods that are being used to resolve those conflicts. Okay, let's get to the interview. Rebecca Carey is a senior staff attorney at the Humane Society of the United States, where she has worked since 2010 in the Animal Protection Law section. The bulk of her work focuses on farm animals and constitutional defense litigation. And I am so grateful that she is joining us today to explain this very important case. Welcome back to the Animal Law Podcast, Rebecca. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. We were just talking before I started recording that you were last on the Animal Podcast at the beginning of 2020, and we're both like confused because <laughs> we thought it was like 10 years ago or something. Like it just, uh, but on a on a on a similar topic, so um, you know, people might want to listen to that episode as well if they want to hear a little bit more about this topic in a different context. But we're going to be talking about ballot initiatives today. And we're also going to be talking mostly about the Dormant Commerce Clause, which has become an enormously important issue for animal lawyers. So I imagine a lot of people who are listening are more or less familiar with the background for California's Prop 12, the ballot initiative involved here. But it has been a pretty long and complicated history. And some may not be familiar with all of it, and others may, may be pretty naive about the whole issue, and it's so important. So let's go back to the very beginning and trace this tra trajectory. And can you just explain, just for people who are really starting out learning about this, what a, just briefly explain what a ballot initiative is and why they have been so important to the farm animal protection movement? Certainly, yeah. So a ballot initiative is when the citizens of a state vote directly on a proposition placed before them. And in order for that ballot initiative to make it to the ballot, there's a process that the initiative has to go through where 
the proponents of the initiative gather signatures and they have to get a certain amount of signatures to even get it on the ballot. And then after that, um, if they succeed in gathering the signatures and the other requirements are met, it's put before the people directly. And I actually remember the first one, which was in Florida, which was about pigs, and the second, which was in Arizona, which was about pigs and veal calves. But but let's start, because I've been doing this for, for a really long time, <laughs> and I'm really old. But uh, let's start with the third one, because that's the one that really starts the story that we're involved with yes. here, which was Prop 2 in California. California is a big state for ballot initiatives, as most people know. So what? when was it, and what did it do? Yeah, great. Yeah, so Proposition 2 was passed by ballot initiative in 2008, and it was the first farm animal initiative that tackled all three of the species that um, that in more recent years um, have, have states have been putting protections around. And those species are egg-laying hens, gestating pigs, pregnant pigs, and also veal calves. So Proposition 2, what it actually says is that animals on farms in California need to have enough room in order to do some very basic behaviors, such as turning around in a full circle and fully extending their limbs without touching another animal or the sides of their enclosures. You know, super radical animal rights-y stuff. <laughs> um, when, uh, when we were trying to get the initiative on the ballot and we talked to voters, most people are sh- were shocked to learn that animals on farms don't already have these very basic protections. Yes. And, you know, I, as I was tangentially involved in, you know, before it was, before the first one was voted upon. And I remember the discussions about uh, how important it was to, to talk about things like the ability to turn around because, like everybody agrees that everybody should be allowed to turn around <laughs> and people there was a way of informing people as well as getting them to vote on it and of yeah. course the big thing in uh, you pointed out that the chickens were added in California and that was enormous at the time and i remember being in meetings where there were big arguments about whether it was just too risky to include chickens but the laying hens but they were and it passed and it was excited and exciting and you were actually involved in that campaign weren't you (laughs) i was yes um i was in law school at the time but i am a proud native californian and while i was in california for one of my uh, legal internships i got a chance to be involved knocking on some doors and gathering some signatures and, and so that was that was really exciting um, to be able to tell people directly about some of these worst forms of cruelty on the planet that we were trying to deal with. So what I mean, that was an enormous change. But the thing that really made this big and has led to where we are. And it's so exciting that you worked on that first ballot initiative and now are <laughs> representing representing the animals in, in this lawsuit. But that was AB 1437. And I'm not sure that many people really were as conscious of that. But that was a huge step forward. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, right. So after California citizens passed Proposition 2 in 2008, and that passed by the largest majority of any ballot initiative in California's history, actually, in 2010, the legislature came along and passed AB 1437. And what 1437 did was say that all eggs sold in the state of California, regardless of where they came from, needed to come from animals that were raised in Proposition 2 compliant ways. In other words, birds uh, needed to have enough room to extend their limbs and turn around in a circle and all of those behaviors. And California was only going to sell eggs that came from those types of animals. Why is this so big? Well, it's huge because it was the first time that we, that there was sort of an extension of these protections um, to, to state sales. And this has given both Prop 2 and AB 1437 are so obviously disturbing to the industry because there have been a lot of lawsuits 
and I don't, you know, we can't go into detail on all of them because we want to go get up to the current one, but can you just kind of give us a summary of some of the litigation this, that this gave rise to? Sure. Yeah. You know, obviously these initiatives, uh, uh, this initiative and this law 1437 um, affected a lot of animals and a lot of uh, products sold in California. And the industry did not take to that kindly. And in the early years after Prop 2 and after 1437, uh, we faced a lot of challenges where egg producers um, largely challenged those laws, challenged the state of California directly, and the Humane Society and some of our great coalition partners, other animal welfare organizations, stepped in to defend those laws. Largely, those challenges were based on constitutional claims like vagueness, egg producers saying, for example, that they couldn't possibly understand what it meant for a chicken to be able to turn around and extend her limbs. Judges routinely and time and again just did not buy that argument. There was also a case brought by a number of states um, led by the attorney general in Missouri challenging AB 1437 on dormant commerce clause grounds, saying that the that the egg sales law violated the Constitution. Um, and that was dismissed and totally thrown out of court for a lack of standing. The same group or a very similar group of states came back again and tried to file an action directly in the Supreme Court of the United States in original jurisdiction action. And uh, the Supreme Court did did not take that up either. Yeah, I remember. I mean, we can't go into it because we have to get to the matter at hand. But I remember talking about that case and being completely perplexed that there was original jurisdiction in the Supreme Court of the United States. <laughs> and apparently, I felt better when when I spoke to people about it because apparently everybody was perplexed. It was surprising. But yeah, so none of yeah. it worked because because the wrong plaintiffs were or at least the, the first case didn't work because it was the wrong plaintiffs. So basically what we're talking about here was when the right plaintiffs brought that case. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Yes, that's that's more or less correct. So let's talk a little bit about Prop 12 itself because we talked about Prop 2. Can you, can you go into some detail of what this new ballot initiative covers and how it's different from Prop 2? Sure. So Proposition 12 was effectively sort of an add-on to the protections that were already in Proposition 2. What Proposition 12 says is that animals on farms in California still need to be able to comply with those basic behavioral requirements we talked about, the extending their limbs and turning around. Uh, but in addition to that, Proposition 12 added something new, um, a couple of things, really. The primary thing that it added was to say that animals needed to have a certain amount of specific square footage of usable floor space. And that was, you know, the amounts vary for, for egg-laying hens, for pigs, and for veal calves. But that, but that was huge. It's the first time that had been done. And in addition to those sort of specific space requirements, it also said that products from animals that sold in the state of California, regardless of where they come from, also need to be raised in similar conditions. In other words, it was the first time that California said that products, the covered products sold within its borders, all of them, not just eggs, but also pork and veal, needed to come from animals that were raised in more these more humane conditions. So it basically extended the provisions of AB 4037 to uh, uh, calves and, and pigs. So uh, yeah. That's right. And, and added some, some additional space protections right. and some enrichments when it comes to hens as well. So when does, it's, not an, it's not in effect yet, right? Parts of it are in effect, uh, but the part that applies to pigs is not yet in effect. So how big of a financial impact is it expected to have on the the amount that, that uh, out-of-state producers can can derive from their products? You know, there there isn't really a specific number yet to to that question question. It's certainly something 
that producers in these most recent rounds of lawsuits are um, arguing strenuously would have a huge, huge impact on their industries. And that's that's something that we don't we don't think is the case. Um, And we don't think that they are alleging sort of the right kinds of uh, economic burdens uh, that are relevant for the constitutional analysis. Yeah, I have such mixed feelings here. Like, I, I wanted to survive the Constitution, but I wanted to cost them a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> Secretly. We don't have to tell anybody that. All right. But even if it doesn't cost them a fortune, profit margins in this area are slim. So it will have an effect, I imagine. Just not enough to make it unconstitutional. All right. I'll stop I'll stop wandering around here and because let's get to the litigation. First of all, the plaintiff is NAMI. And can you tell us who that is? Yeah, so uh, NAMI or NAMI um, is the the North American Meat Institute, and they are a national trade association that represents meat packers and processors, including pork producers as well as some veal producers. So, since basically what's going on here is they want to stop the enforcement of a statute, they have to sue the governmental entity um, who enforces that statute. So, who is that? Yeah, so so they sued the the state of California directly. And you were involved in the case as an intervener, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. The Humane Society of the United States, um, as well as some great uh, coalition partners, other animal welfare groups, intervened in the case on the side of California to protect this law, um, which is something we standardly do either by intervention or filing amicus briefs, particularly in cases like this one where our groups had a direct role in drafting the the law and advocating for it you know being one of its one of its primary proponents so you were allowed to intervene here can you just can we just take a quick detour and discuss when one is allowed to intervene in a case what the relevant rules are so standardly parties can intervene in a case where they, their request for intervention is timely and if they have sort of a significant protectable interest in the case and, and, and if they're not adequately represented by the existing parties. No, but uh, there was no objection to your intervention here, right? So um, that's, that's right. Uh-huh. I noticed that, the, I, I actually don't know what this means, but I noticed that there was an agreement that there would be no mutual discovery. Is that a common way to obtain permission to intervene? Is that something that that the plaintiff would consider uh, reduces the the problems that it causes for them? You know, I'm not sure exactly how standardly that happens. um, But yeah, certainly there was a little bit of a back and forth between the the interveners in this case, um, which thankfully allowed for a very easy agreement to come into place about our intervention. And I know you, you also had a number of amicus briefs filed and some of which were surprising. Can you talk about that a little bit? There, there were a number of amicus briefs filed in this case by by uh, manufacturing groups and by uh, a number of uh, states that that oppose Proposition Twelve. I'm not. I'm not sure they were surprising. We we more or less expected some opposition there. Yes. So, what relief was the plaintiff? seeking in the lawsuit itself? So uh, in this stage of the lawsuit, NAMI was seeking a preliminary injunction. In other words, they were trying to stop Proposition 12 from going into effect. So as often happens when a party brings an action for an injunction, they first try to get a preliminary injunction. And that's really what we're talking about in this case. To succeed in a preliminary injunction, a party has to show that there are serious questions on the merits of at least one of their claims. In other words, they need to show that there is some some likely some likelihood of success um, on the merits. They also need to show that there's going to be some kind of irreparable harm. And a lot of us remember from law school, even if we never dealt with it again, if one prevails on a on a preliminary injunction, that is often the end of the matter. If the court decides that um, they're not likely to succeed on the merits, uh, you know, you're kind of screwed. Is that what happened here? Well, there's also a um, sort of motion to dismiss pending in this case, and 
what we have here is sort of a, a interesting situation where although the lower court denied the request for a preliminary injunction, there was a little bit sort of mixed results on the motion to dismiss. But that is currently sort of all stayed pending the, the rest of the res- re- resolution of the preliminary injunction. So the the actual issue is not completely resolved. And uh, is, is there still anything pending in the Ninth Circuit? So the Ninth Circuit did affirm the Central District's determination that NAMI is unlikely to see, succeed on the merits of its claims. And so in other words, they, they affirmed the lower court's denial of the preliminary injunction and said that the lower court did not abuse its discretion in ruling that way. However, we have since learned that NAMI is going to seek en banc review. Um, in other words, seek a sort of review of that decision from a broader panel on the Ninth Circuit. So although, you know, we are, we are hopeful the decision um, is not quite finalized. Yeah, actually, that was going to be the completion of this interview, but uh, it it just kind of came up, and I, I I did not know that before. So that's interesting to know. But now we need to go backwards and, <laughs> and actually talk about what happened in the case that sure. they came to that resolution. So the argument, you know, as we talked about, centered on the dormant commerce clause, and you and I have spoken of that before. But the audience is probably split between people who know a lot about it and people who don't. So. Can you just briefly explain what the Dormant Commerce Clause is, what I mean when I say that? And if people want more detail, they can revisit our interview, which was on episode 57, which was a different context, but also involved the same um, issues. Yeah, sure. So as a matter of fact, uh, where's the Dormant Commerce Clause is sort of a standing joke (laughs) among a certain set of nerdy lawyers, because it is indeed not in the text of the Commerce Clause itself. The concept of the Dormant Commerce Clause, it's, it's really the corollary to the power that's granted uh, to Congress to regulate interstate commerce. In other words, it's sort of the, um, the, the other part of that. It's the, the limit on the state's ability to regulate interstate commerce, except in, you know, if, if some certain conditions are met. And so there are, there are several ways the statute can violate the Dormant Commerce Clause. I think they're arguing all of them. And can you just can you just kind of lay out the various theories? I mean, the, the two biggest is discrimination and directly regulating and pike balancing. So can you <laughs> kind of summarize them there? Can you explain what each of those things is? Because each of them is an independent way that a statute can violate the Commerce Clause. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And, and you're correct that NAMI did argue that the Commerce Clause is violated in all three of these ways. So the first way that a statute can violate the Dormant Commerce Clause is if it discriminates against interstate commerce. And just briefly, a statute can do that if it sort of on its face discriminates against interstate commerce or if it discriminates in its purpose or its effect. So on its face would be something along the lines of uh, you can only buy curtains made in California. <laughs> that's that's right. That's a that's a fantastic example. Uh-huh. <laughs> if unlikely. Yeah. So NAMI, NAMI didn't argue that there was any kind of facial issue with Proposition 12. It originally argued that there was a discriminatory purpose of, of the statute, but it dropped that on appeal um, as well. So in essence... NAMI only argued that the effect of Proposition 12 was to discriminate against interstate commerce. And what about uh, the second way it can, you can uh, violate directly regulating extraterritorial conduct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So laws that are extraterritorial violate the Commerce Clause. um, And those are, those are laws that directly regulate interstate commerce. Here, on the other hand, Proposition 12, of course, only regulates meat uh, and other products in California, the sale of those products in California, rather than anything, any conduct outside of the state. And and briefly, just tell us what pike balancing is, and then we'll get into the details on, on each of these. Sure. So courts have found that if a statute imposes a substantial burden on interstate commerce, 
one that is excessive to the putative local benefits of that statute, it violates the Dormant Commerce Clause as well. And so let's get back to, um, as you said, they dropped their argument that there was a discriminatory purpose, but they continue to argue that this had a discriminatory effect, basically, that this was discriminating against products from out of state. Now, on its face, this argument has always seemed ridiculous to me because because they're applying, California was applying the same rules to California eggs as it was applying to out of state. I mean, in fact, it started yes. by applying them to cat to not just eggs. I, I mean, pork and uh, veal. It started with Proposition Two, where they were imposing these conditions only on California. In fact, they were discriminating against themselves, <laughs> and then they just imposed exactly the same conditions on the products from other states. Where how? What was I've never really understood their argument that that was not the case. Can you explain it to me? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I know that's putting you in an odd position that you have to make their <laughs> argument, but I just don't get it. That's fine. Yeah, it's an argument that has led us to scratch our heads quite a bit as well. Essentially, what their argument is, is that California, because Proposition 2, like you said, um, had been in, a, in effect a number of years, um, eight years on the books before Proposition 12 was passed. There, the argument is that those California producers essentially had some lead time in making their products comply with the standards that effectively are also in Prop 12. So Prop 12, it was the first time, of course, that the pork and veal standards applied to out-of-state producers who want to sell in the state as well. So the argument is that by the time Prop 12 comes around, California producers are already raising their animals in these more humane conditions. And so they've got sort of a leg up on out-of-state producers who might need to hurry up and come into compliance if they want to sell their products in the state. And why did the court reject this argument? Well, the court rejected this argument because it's it's sort of ridiculous on its face, like you said. I mean, it simply just cannot be the case that every time a state wants to do something to protect its citizens and then later on decides to give its citizens some additional protection, that, that it's a constitutional problem. Uh, in other words, California started with wanting to make these humane changes in its, in its state, protecting the animals on the farms. But then they wanted to take that a step further and say that they didn't want products of cruelty in their marketplace. Um, and they wanted to protect citizens from, you know, being complicit in a system of cruelty. And that has been upheld time and again by the courts, um, including in the Ninth Circuit. There's a foie gras case that we talk a lot about. And the court in looking at this case leaned on the foie gras case as well. In fact, saying that the NAMI case is on all fours with the foie gras case, because there, the state of California banned both the production of foie gras and of force-fed foie gras as well as the sales in the state of California. And because the law banned both the interstate and the intrastate sales resulting from force feeding, that wasn't, that wasn't a problem. So discriminatory purpose in effect is one way that a statute can violate the Dormant Clause. But as you pointed out, the second way is if it regulates extraterritorial conduct. And this seems to be something that they feel very strongly about. And what does this mean? And why doesn't Prop 12? I mean, I kind of know why it doesn't, but because it seems obvious. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> but why doesn't it? I mean, they're saying that because California did this, Missouri or wherever producers have to have to change the way they do business. So why is it not? Why is not that not the case? Yeah, that, that is exactly what they're saying. And it's not the case because Proposition 12 simply doesn't mandate that Missouri producers change their models of production. They can, if a producer in Missouri wants to continue cruelly confining pigs in tiny gestation crates where they can barely move and sell the products in other places in Missouri or around the country, that's fine. They just can't sell their products in California. In other words, 
because Proposition 12 only regulates sales actions in that state, it's not impermissibly overextending its reach. So if I understand this correctly, they argue that if California can regulate imports based on the way the animals are treated, any state can regulate imports based on a whole host of requirements, such as worker pay, environmental concerns, but but they can, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. And there, again, there's some great case law in the Ninth Circuit saying that it's entirely permissible for states to regulate their own marketplaces based on the harmful effects of how a product was produced. And, and states, states do that all the time. They frequently have laws and regulations that impose certain requirements for how products in their borders um, are, are produced and sold, whether that be requirements on you know, how milk is produced or BPA in baby food jars. Um, it's, a, it's a very standard and unremarkable thing across the country. Yeah, I, I didn't, uh, th- that argument seems so confusing to me. And the alternative would be that the production of everything would just automatically flow to the state that had the worst laws, the worst protective laws. Isn't that what would yeah, happen? That, that's right. Essentially a race to the bottom. Um, that's, that's exactly right. And all that the, that NAMI really could point to for its argument was a Seventh Circuit case, so way outside of our jurisdiction, that was so extreme and so protectionist and so regulating of the sort of nitty gritty terms of contracts and such that didn't even have any connection to the state of Indiana where the law came out of, um, that it, it is just entirely inapplicable. And, and the court saw right through that. Yeah, the, uh, these arguments have always seemed so weak to me, but they've certainly given you a lot of work because <laughs> these lawsuits just won't stop, which I think is an indication of how, how huge this is for them. Uh, that they just keep trying. Are there any other arguments as to how it regulates extraterritorial conduct or does that kind of cover it? That more or less covers their main arguments, yes. You know, there's something here, and I this is going to be a terrible question because I can't quite put my finger on it, but it kind of, this whole rationale from the court kind of recognizes that the act of purchase and consumption of a product is an inherent part of the... Uh, of the problems involved in production. I mean, it does, it says, yeah, like, like if it was about another product, that wouldn't surprise us that, you know, if you're, if you're buying a, 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 a curtain, I'll use the curtain example again, that is made with bad worker conditions, that, that it's relevant to your purchase of that product, how it was produced. But that's, that's just not something that is generally recognized with animal issues. I mean, it's kind of an entire, all right, I'm getting really out here, kind of an entire rationale for veganism or for not buying animal products and that when you buy them, you are participating in the way something was made. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I would argue that although a lot of the case law has standardly been, as you mentioned, about sort of some of the the health, state's health and safety rationales for passing a law, we do now have a good amount of case law very strongly stating that, that states have the ability to legislate not just based on those kinds of uh, health and safety rationales, but also for welfare. There is a great case, for example, out of the Second Circuit, the Crescenzi case, talking about how states absolutely can regulate to reduce the complic- their complicity in cruel practices that take place elsewhere. And that doesn't mean that you are regulating the animal production that takes place in other states. It simply means that you are taking, that the citizens in your state um, have determined that they don't want products of such cruelty in their state. Um, same with the, the foie gras law that we, ex- that we discussed earlier. Yeah, it does seem like this. There's a almost philosophical argument underlying all of this that that does connect uh, purchase and consumption to the cruelty, which I think you know is obvious to us. But for ninety nine percent of the people in the world, when they buy an, an animal product, they don't feel complicit in how it was produced. And now the law says it is. I just think there's something so interesting there. Um, <laughs> 
That's that's right. And and also I would just point out that California voters, when they when they went to the polls, they actually did see some of some of those arguments about well about the um, you know complicity and cruel practices when they looked at their voter guides, um, which had information not just on the public health risks of some of these products from severely confined animals, but also uh, the welfare reasons as well. So the the court found that that it wasn't trying to regulate extraterritorial conduct, but is there is it possible that in the future California could implement it in a way that it would? I, I think the court alluded to that at some point. They said that Nami's other arguments were speculative because no regulations were had been passed interpreting uh, Prop 12. So I'm just wondering, could this like go on forever? Could this be your entire career for the rest of your life? <laughs> California does something and then they say, no, now it's, it's regulating um, <laughs> extraterritorial conduct. Do you see this in the future? Well, I certainly, I certainly hope not. Um, the majority of extraterritoriality cases are those involving things like price affirmation statutes and things that really don't come up very often. And, and I think that that's why NAMI had to sort of grasp at straws in looking at like that Seventh Circuit case, for example, that I mentioned, because it takes an awful lot for a court to say that a, a statute is regulating extraterritorially, especially whereas here, Proposition 12 regulates super even-handedly, and it just regulates based on how the meat is produced, not where it, where it's produced. Um, and it it leaves the decision up to producers in whatever state they're in, whether they want to choose to comply with the law and how they're going to choose to comply with that law if they want to sell in California. Well, uh, my prediction is, is if there's even a hint of an argument, good or not, there will be a lawsuit because that seems to be how this is going. <laughs> right, we haven't even gotten to the to the end of their arguments because the other way a facially neutral statute can violate the Dormant Commerce Clause is, as you mentioned before, the pike balancing argument. So can you tell us a little bit about how that applies here or how they argued it applies here? Yeah, certainly. So as I mentioned in the beginning, a statute can violate the Dormant Commerce Clause if it imposes a substantial burden on interstate commerce, but only if that uh, substantial burden is excessive in related to local benefits. Um, and that's that's the part that's sometimes considered the sort of pike balancing that happens. Although courts don't even have to get to looking at the state's interest in the law if they don't find that there's a substantial burden on interstate commerce. So what kind of things have been found to be substantial burdens under Pike and and why didn't the court find one here? Yeah, so really only a small number of cases have uh, invalidated laws that aren't discriminatory on this basis. And those laws generally involve issues that are inherently national in scope or require a uniform system of operation. For example, interstate transportation, things like that. The, most of these cases involve, you know, a state regulation on trucks that then is going to necessarily affect trucks in whatever state they're in because trucks operate on interstate highways and things like that. Yeah, that seems like... Not their strongest argument, though. I don't think any of their arguments are that strong. But as you pointed out, the case is going to keep going. And when when is en banc consideration going to be submitted? The briefing is due, the opening brief is due later this month, I believe towards the end of this month. So it will certainly be an ongoing thing we'll be looking at through the end of the year. Like I, I just wanted to, to really stress, um, I think you're right, Marianne, to, to point out that there's some real weaknesses inherent in this argument. And I should also flag that really the impacts on interstate commerce that NAMI tried to flag here are the kinds that courts have routinely said are just not sufficient for dormant commerce clause purposes. They focus on things like the impacts to the individual producers who are going to, they say, have to make all of these costly changes to make sure that 
their animals have the sorts of space to be able to, for their products to be able to be sold in the California market. And, and that's just not enough under Supreme Court precedent and Ninth Circuit precedent. It burdens these in, impacts on individual producers are just not the kind of burdens that courts find sufficient to violate the Dormant Commerce Clause. So do you have other examples of what would be a, a substantial burden that, that you know, that doesn't, that it's not necessarily discriminatory, so it's okay under the first tier of analysis, but yet would, would impose such a burden? How would it impose such a burden on interstate commerce? Yeah, courts courts have just so rarely found um, that that such a burden exists, and there there isn't really a set sort of dollar amount or type of item that constitutes an excessive burden. But one thing courts have really focused on is burdens where the flow of commerce across state lines is is really affected. Um, so not just the sort of impacts to individual producers that that NAMI is focusing on. And the Humane Society and our coalition in our intervener's brief, one of the things we were able to point to below um, in the court is a declaration from an economist saying that really NAMI hasn't considered some of the ways that producers complying with Proposition 12 might actually improve the flow of interstate commerce across state lines. You know, complying with Proposition 12 opens up producers to the growing interest in humanely produced products across the country and across the world. Yeah, I actually think that's totally true. I mean, that that makes so much sense to me. Obviously, things are changing. The being incentivized to keep up at least a little bit with modern attitudes towards animals could be a good thing for interstate commerce. So we already discussed your next project here, which is the Unpunk. But there's a, um, do you think this case would go all the way to the Supreme Court? Do you think that's a possibility? It's, it's certainly possible. Um, we think it's certainly possible that these plaintiffs might try to take this all the way to the Supreme Court. I'm not sure that the Supreme Court would take up this case in this kind of posture on the preliminary injunction. But there's, you know, sort of a lot of moving parts of the current challenges to to this law. There is a another case, sort of a copycat case in also out of the Ninth Circuit in the Southern District of California, where the National Pork Producers Council is challenging Proposition 12 on very similar grounds, um, identical grounds, really, just with one fewer claim. They don't have a discrimination claim in their case. And we won the motion to dismiss phase of that case in the lower courts. And so that's on appeal in the Ninth Circuit as well right now. And we're currently briefing as as we speak. Um, in fact, I keep worrying that I'm going to say NPPC instead of NAMI as we're talking about <laughs> this because they're uh, one and the same in my mind lately. Yeah, this really is going to be your career. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> these cases are never going to stop. They really can't afford to, to stop them, I guess. Do you expect similar cases to be brought in other jurisdictions in hopes of creating a split in the circuits? I'm thinking Massachusetts law, which also has a sales ban. There might be others as well. Yeah, Ma- Massachusetts would be a likely place where a challenge might come from, given how very similar Massachusetts Question 3 is to Proposition 12, um, both affect the production and sales of all three of the species we've talked about today. You know, I, I, I'm not sure how many more challenges we'll see. I'm hopeful that meat trade groups are going to start investing their members' dollars in starting to help eliminate these these cruel practices rather than defending these cruel and abusive farm systems. It's it's really just a waste of their members' money to pursue, pursue these, these lawsuits that fail time and time again. And I'm encouraged by some of the progress we're seeing in the egg industry, actually. As I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, in 
the early days of Proposition 2 and AB 1437, we saw a lot of challenges by the egg industry who thought that those laws would be sort of an end of their industry, much like pork producers and veal producers are claiming here. But they realized, I think, that it that it wasn't. Um, we've got many, many produ- egg producers getting on board and producing eggs in cage-free environments. And as a matter of fact, one of the our former opponents in the egg law cases um, is actually on our side now. The Association of California Egg Producers filed an amicus brief um, in support of and in defense of Proposition 12. Yeah, that's, it, it's really interesting what is happening. And, I, you know, I'm not sure how to ask this of you, because you're obviously in a particular position. But it's pretty obvious to me that products produced in accordance with Proposition 12 are still very cruelly produced. I think everybody listening to this would agree. And it's like so much progress in the animal rights world. It's huge, like huge step forward and still pathetic in so many ways. But for you, does it does it fit into a bigger picture for protecting animals? Does it fit into to the extent that you want to opine outside the 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 framework of this case do you see do you, what assuming you can win all these cases what's the next step for for getting animals out of cruel systems yeah you know i'm i'm really encouraged by all the progress we've seen um in just the last 10 or 15 years in this space i think you know we all hope for, um, or at least the, the people listening to this podcast, all hope for a day where animals are granted, you know, even more protections and more freedoms. But I do believe that Proposition 12 was was historic and was precedent setting in the way that in, in, in terms of the scope of how many animals it applies to, in terms of how many species, and in terms of the sales component. So I'm, I'm hopeful for more, absolutely. But the text of Proposition 12, which, which gives animals, um, you know, officially so much more space by law than they would have had without that, is, is a big step forward um, and, and really does get at some of the worst, worst types of cruelty. And I think that that's a big win for the animals. Yeah, no, I, I, and I certainly didn't mean to imply that I didn't that I didn't think so. It's just that right, right. It's so far to go, and as I said, progress tends to be both huge and tiny at the same time. <laughs> just starting so far behind where uh, where absolutely, and if nothing, and it also helps bring attention, when, and then people can make their personal decisions about whether they think this is enough. So there, there are a lot of advantages to, to getting this out, out in the open. And obviously the industry recognizes that. Sales bans. The last time I spoke to you, we spoke about a sales ban and a d- dormant commerce clause issue, but it was about puppies. Can you just, you're kind of the expert now on sales bans. Can you, is, are those the two major areas, farm animal issues and puppies or puppy mills? Those those are two big ones. And we also, as a matter of fact, that that case that we last spoke about is up on appeal right now, and we've got briefs due this this month in that case. But uh, yeah, those are two of the the biggest uh, sales ban issues. But we also see some similar legislation in the wildlife space, for example, ivory sales bans and and fur sales bans and things like that. So I imagine there's there's a strong correlation between the uh, between strong activism about ish, the harms of factory farms and the ability to get these laws passed. The more activists bring attention to it, the easier it is for legal advocates to get these sales bans imposed. You know, everybody politicians care about what people care about. I'm just wondering whether you think the current attention to the connections between pandemics and animal abuse not that it has been enough, but there has been some attention to that. I expect there to be more, particularly vis-a-vis factory farming. Do you think that's it's going to create like an even stronger motivation for legislatures to do things like sales bans as the harms become more obvious? Is it one more argument beyond the animal and environmental issues that's going to make this a compelling legislative issue? 
Yes, yes, certainly. And I, I hope that it does get increased in attention. You know, the, the intensive confinement of farm animals uh, also does increase the public health risks, including the spread of dangerous zoonotic diseases, as, as we are, of course, seeing in, in this current climate of COVID and such. So I, I do think that that's going to be sort of yet another tool in states' tool belts when it comes to enacting laws that protect animals and protect consumers as well. Yeah, and particular, I mean, it would be hard to argue that these diseases don't cross state lines. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, a, that's another defense of a sales ban here. Yeah, precisely. So I, I do think this will be your life, Rebecca, because I think <laughs> this is a hugely growing area for, for animal lawyers. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Nothing that I can think of at the moment. Yeah, I, I would just uh, emphasize that, yeah, we are we are excited about the progress of these laws. We're excited that courts, including the Ninth Circuit, keep upholding them again and again. And, you know, the NAMI and uh, industry groups like it keep trying to blur that really critical distinction between laws that they just disagree with and laws that actually violate the Constitution. And I fervently hope that they will start to see the writing on the wall and, as I said, start to invest their dollars, um, their trade groups, their members' dollars in helping to eliminate some of these cruel confinement systems and selling into these more humane marketplaces like California rather than bringing these frivolous lawsuits. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you there. So thanks so much for, for all of your work on this issue. It's, it's just hugely, hugely important. And thanks for joining us today. It, it's been very enlightening. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So thanks so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new show. Thanks to Rebecca Carey for taking the time to delve into these matters with us. Thank you to Jen Riley and Jarob Gleckel for their help in producing the podcast. In the meantime, if you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Consider leaving us a good review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, if you are able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org. Thank you so much for tuning in and please be safe out there.